This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, I'm Zach Albetta and welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. Our guest today is Steve Haas, whose career has had a New York half followed by an LA half. Steve found success in both towns, amassing a resume that includes notables across the jazz, fusion, and pop spectrum, including Ravi Coltrane, Manhattan Transfer, John Schofield, Patty Austin, and Keiko Matsui. He has also recently launched a new Patreon campaign that takes a different approach to educational content for drummers. Speaking of Patreon, if you want to help support what we do here at Working Drummer Podcast, we invite you to become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive educational content from our former guests. During this weird season of isolation we're going through, I think this content would be especially useful and I know we'd be especially grateful. We're populating new content regularly and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. So I had a great time talking with Steve. It made me wish that I had sought him out during my time in L.A., as so many of our mutual friends said I should. Uh, but it was good to get to know him on the mics here for a bit. So here we go. Hope you dig Steve Haas. I auditioned for my first uh, uh, event band on Long Island when I was 17. And, and, you know, my senior year of high school, I was gigging on the weekends, you know, playing covers, you know, love yeah. Shack and <laughs> whatever. <laughs> And then, you know, uh, Conga <laughs> by yeah. Miami Sound Machine and all that. I was playing people's weddings at these these crazy, uh, you know, uh, catering halls. <laughs> right. So um, with a lot of older guys, too, that were that inspired me and kind of paved the way for me to learn about playing with musicians and not just, you know, being a fancy drummer, you know, how, how to really make the music happen, you know, and help them sound good. You right. Know? Yeah, yeah. Were were there some uh, early lessons in that regard, or, or lessons you learned the hard way? Yeah, yes. You know, uh, at that time I was listening to a lot of uh, Dave Weckl, and I, I had the um, uh, the Zildjian Day video with Vinny, and and you know, so of course you're going to try to uh, experiment with all those things on right. the, the first gig you get. So I was. You know, I, I think I had a pretty good feel for a young kid, but I, I would—I was always trying to force these things into the music, and that was the first lesson I learned: is don't overplay. You know. Yeah. Um, uh, a producer that I'm still friends with today came out to a gig of mine when I was around 17, 18, and he's like, you know, and I was a little cocky, and he said, <laughs> you know, he's like, man, that that stuff is cool, but it's no pocket. Right. <laughs> No, yeah. no, you're overplaying. There's no pocket. It's just in that voice, you know. <laughs> uh, and and I and I felt so badly about it. But the but you know I I got it eventually. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, Have you yeah. uh, like you know over the years? Obviously, you've developed just a, a ton of facility around the kit, and and you 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 get around it as well as anyone. Um, so has it been a has it been a challenge for you or has it become easier to to edit your playing in that way and just like, you know, not overplay, not add too much as you're as you're adding all this stuff to your vocabulary, as your right. facility is 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 improving? Right. You know, it, it depends on the context. But um, early on, uh, I took uh, some some lessons with uh, Marvin Smitty Smith just, just to yeah. get some. 
just to get a lot of that language and because I liked the way he was able to use his facility and how musical it sounded, you know, mm-hmm. um, and of course, coming from from Billy Cobham and, and all the, the great drummers that know how to uh, play longer notes, uh, you know, a.k.a. roles, you know, right, around right. drums and play melodies. Um, but um, during that time as well, I started uh, working with um, bands and, mm-hmm. and and the other instrumentalists in the bands, the songwriters and whatnot, taught me how to play for the song and, and showed me how when the drums do a little too much that it's actually taking the listener's attention away from the purpose of the song, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, I, you kind of have to split the difference, you know? It, it really depends on the context and, and who you're playing with and what they like to hear, you know? Right. Um, Personally, right. as, as I get older, I hear less and less notes, but there are situations where I just want to unleash sometimes, you know, and, and hopefully I, I'm, I'm still uh, fit enough to do that. <laughs> right, right. You know? one, of the lessons, one of the lessons yeah. I learned, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Well, one I, of the lessons I learned about, about playing for songs specifically, because, you know, my, my background is in jazz. I mean, like, like you, I, I've just played a shitload of instrumental or improvisational music. Yeah. Um, and you know it's kind of it's kind of ingrained in us to play a fill or something of higher intensity like at the end of a phrase you know right. going into the next phrase and at some point uh i i kind of figured out that like that a lot of times that is the exact opposite of what you should do in a song right. because like the, this you're still going to have spaces to do something in songs but it's not going to be where you think it is because right. like leading up to you know the end of a phrase or the beginning of a new phrase like that's where the singer is like starting lyrics leading up to beat 1 or that's where a guitar solo is starting um or that's where like just a break has to happen right um, so i can't tell you how many times i just like found myself on a gig thinking like, Oh yeah, I'm going to do a fill here. And then like the last bar of a phrase was just completely cluttered up with my shit. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. But you learn from that, you know, and, and recording yourself, I think really helps too. I, yeah. I, that's, I have, that's when I learned it. I would listen yeah. back and be like, well, that bar just went out the window because of me. But <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. Yeah. And it, what's really cool about that is that when, um, people are expecting a fill, you know, the other members of the band and, and you don't play one. Sometimes it's almost more intense, you know, right. It's just, right. It, it, just that space that's there has, has a feeling to it that a, a fill could never really capture. Totally. Know? Or just like a big beat four flam, like, you know, crash on one, just, yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. they look, they look back and they smile cause they're like, Oh, you, you know, right. You Thank you. Surprised Thank us you. There. <laughs> You didn't play like a drummer there. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but you know, as as um as a just a hundred percent uh hired gun, uh you you really have to put different hats on all the time. And sometimes, you know, with this hustle playing different gigs all the time to make ends meet, I I lose a sense of who I am sometimes, you know, and I have to just try to find that again. That's interesting. Do you yeah. think that's well? Un- unpack that a little more. Well, because you're you're 
you're playing with all these different people trying to make them happy all the time. And, and, uh, many times you're, you're, you're going against whatever instincts you have, you know, if it's a recording or, or a certain gig or, you know, um, we're going to do this song at this BPM, even though it's, that's not where it sits. Right. You know, I know that's mm -hmm. not the recording, but we have to do it this way so we can medley it into these tunes. And, you know, it's like I, you get caught up in all of that and you lose a sense of who you are. But I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that I get to do some creative gigs that bring me back into the picture. You know, I mean, right. it's yeah, it's always you. All right. Now where's <laughs> coming from. It's 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 always you, but it's like different versions of you, you know. Right, right. Um, do you do you feel like singing now? Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> do you feel like that um, that feeling of of sort of losing the sense of yourself? Um, did that uh, worsen or or deepen uh, when you moved to L.A.? Um. You know, I, I don't know if, if, if I, I think it worsened, but I don't know if L.A. had anything to do with it. It's just circumstances. You know, it's mm -hmm. it was it was wanting to travel less. And, and when you play with um, when you're traveling, you're playing with with one artist, you get to develop a thing with them and it keeps going. You know, um, you play the same repertoire most of the time every night, you know, but when you're hustling, it's something different every day almost you know even, right. even on the local gigs you know they're bringing in different tunes i mean uh, not the local gigs but the local weekly gigs where you see the same musicians once a week even in those situations they'll bring in different things you know and then you have to try to accommodate them because they're they're paying you you know right. and i'm not complaining that's a good thing you know and that's a skill to have but I'm I'm the type of musician where I if I do one thing for too long it, it starts to get to me you know mm -hmm. I, I like to experience the whole thing all the time you know <laughs> right yeah so, and in yeah. terms of that like is is that the vision that you had your for your career like from an from an early stage I mean I know I know you went to Berkeley and we can talk about yeah. that but like did you did you visualize yourself just doing anything and everything. I did, but the scene changed, you know, mm -hmm. so, so my vision kind of changed, you know, because, uh, what I had envisioned really didn't exist anymore. Uh, by the time I moved to New York, it, it was there and I caught the tail end of it. But, uh, and what was that? Well, it, it was just being an all around player that went on the road and, and did sessions. And, and, you know, I, I really feel at home in the studio, you know, I really like creating something from the ground up and being mm -hmm. a part of that process, you know, drum parts, drum sounds, you know, and, um, a lot of that went away, you know, I did it for a little while, I would say for about five or six years, it was pretty consistent between that and the jingles like media type session work. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, um, you know, the scene completely changed because of technology. Right. So, uh, that switched to a lot of live gigs that switched to, you know, going back to weddings after, you know, because when I, um, after Berkeley, I didn't do much of that anymore, you know? Right. Uh, I got some really cool jazz gigs. I got some cool crossover gigs. Yeah. I didn't, I, I thought I would never have to play a gig like that again, but the scene changed, you right, know, so right. it's either those or Broadway or getting on a plane, you know? Yeah. So yeah. all of that came back. So being that, you know, the blue collar in me, I have to have to make a living, you know? Right. I mean, I guess I could have got another job and then just played what I wanted to play all the time, but. Right. Yeah. And some people go that route. Um, yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. 
But it, there is a skill, though, involved in doing what we do, where you, you just have to do something different all the time and make people happy. That, that's a certain skill, you know? Yeah. yeah. And you get really good at that when you do it a lot. You know? Right. And I guess the reason I asked the thing about L.A. was like, you know, in terms of your identity at a, as a player um, you, or in terms of one's identity, like you're you're someone who has like had a long career in New York and a long career in L.A., and done well in in both spots and i'm wondering if um in retrospect like are in in terms of what those two towns uh demand of a drummer right. are there are there more similarities between them or more differences i think there's a lot of similarities you know i i, I think if you have um a certain set of, of skills to be able to play a lot of different kinds of music. You're, you're going to work anywhere. Um, I feel like in New York, an, an individual voice was more accepted at the time. That, yeah, you know? that was kind of what I'm getting at. If, yeah. if like the New York scene kind of puts more value on, on an individual, uh, voice or approach. Yeah. Whereas, whereas LA puts value on like a skill set, which isn't really the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely that, but I feel like in the past, I don't know how many years, five or six, I feel that's changed here. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like, uh, a lot of the younger musicians who bring that creative energy and, and personality, uh, to, to the music are, are staying here instead of moving to New York or they're coming here from the East coast because New York is, is too expensive for them. Right. You know? Uh, so I feel like within that it, it's changing, like, you know, even in, in, in the top four, like the singer songwriter type drummers there, everyone's got their own voice now. Whereas before it was like, you're a session drummer. Everyone's right. like Jeff Procaro, you know, right. Or trying to do that thing. But I feel like now, there's, you know, drummers like Jay Belrose who have their own thing happening. You know, there's, yeah. there's drummers like that here um, that are kind of changing things up. And and there's, there's a lot more of them. I see them on Instagram. I don't know who they all are, but they're all, you know, yeah. recording and working and getting great sounds and doing things with percussion. And, you know, uh, and everyone's got like their own little sound and the way they approach the, the the pocket you know right um and i think it it might have to do with like the, just the fragmentation of of the music audience in general um because yeah. you know no no one artist really gets as huge as a lot of artists got 20 or 30 years ago That's right. they all have like smaller but more devoted fan bases so therefore the musicians they work with don't have to be so um you know, universal, they can be more individualistic. Right. Right. There's that too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but, but if you want to work every day and make a living, that's a different thing Then you have to offer a little more, you know, this was bad to be. And I'm also glad I found to meet you every single day. Gotta have your love around me, baby. So it, seemed on paper at least like you were really kicking new york's ass uh for a while um doing well there so what made you cool wanna, yeah what made you want to move to la uh, uh my wife <laughs> <laughs> it, that was not a musical decision it, but right. i was coming out here a lot and i had started working out here a little bit i did a few sessions um in sort of the jazzy fusion scene 
you know, and I would play at the baked potato sometimes, but I wasn't living here. I was out here visiting my girlfriend. And then when we got married, um, well, right before we got married, I, I decided, you know, because she wasn't that into New York as a residence. She loved New York, but not for an everyday city to live in, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of hard place to live, you know? Yeah. So, um, I decided to move out here thinking that, you know, this is a huge scene and and I could make a living here, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and thank God I had touring gigs because I didn't realize how difficult of a scene LA was to break into, you know? Yeah. It took me forever to, (laughs) To get my local flow, I thought it would never happen. I was just, I, I was grateful that it happened right before my daughter was born because the, the timing was perfect. Right. You know. And how long had you been in LA at that point? Uh, six or seven years. And yeah. I still wasn't, I had no consistent, I had some good, there were some good gigs I was doing, but there was nothing consistent. Like if I didn't get on a plane, I, I couldn't survive here. Right. You know. Right. Um, um, I couldn't even, I mean, I couldn't even break into event bands. I, you know, I was writing emails uh, saying, Hey, you know, I've played with so and so done all this had, stuff. And it was I, like, had really? I had the same experience. I had the same experience. Yeah. It's tough, man. It takes a long time in LA yeah. for some reason. Um, and I think part of it's cause it's just so damn big. Um, yeah. but it's uh, big and people are attached to who they're attached to, you know? Right. Right. You know, and that's the other thing, uh, you know, going back to New York, and I don't know what New York is like now because I haven't lived there in, in 11 years almost. But in New York, I feel people were m- more welcoming for, for to have a new voice. Mm. Whereas, whereas when I first came over here, I felt like people were just used to what they were used to and that's what they wanted, you know. And if you brought something new into it, the majority of people weren't, you know, artists, musicians weren't as into it as I found they were in New York as a yeah. newcomer. So, so yeah, that's, that, that's a noticeable difference. Come to think of it. Right. You know, right. but again, that I believe that's changing. You yes. Know? I think it is too. Yeah. Um, I, I lived in LA for five years and, uh, we, we moved to Atlanta, uh, about four years ago also because of my wife. Right. Um, she, she got a job here and, and the more we learned about Atlanta, the more we were like, this place kicks ass, let's do it. She yeah. was like super sick of LA and I was starting to get sick of LA, right. but, um, I had been there five years at that point. Um, and you know, I, I was, I was fine with leaving. I, I didn't, I didn't feel like I was, um, you know, doing the wrong thing or whatever, but I was having a, a final cigar hang with our, uh, our mutual friend, Nick Mancini. Oh, nice. Um, and, you know, I, I'd been there five years. I was working. I had I had the Disneyland thing. I had other gigs. But like you said, I yeah, hadn't really. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was great. But I hadn't found that local flow yet that you talked about. Right. And and Nick said, you know, man, I almost hate to tell you this, but I feel like if you just if you just gave it a f- few more years here, like you'd just be in and going. And I was like, ah, fuck. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a while. And, yeah. and you know, for some people, somehow it doesn't. <laughs> but right. I wasn't one of those, you know, I, I feel like it's just luck. And, you know, Ralph Humphrey, has, I've heard him say that before, that it's a lot of it is just luck. It really is. You know, it really um, is. And you, I, I mean, yeah. Uh, when another, you, another reason that I, I didn't quite get the traction I wanted in L.A., is because like like New York, it's a hard place to live. It's hard in a different way. Right. Um, but even if I had found that flow, um, I think just uh, you know, the, like you said, the day to day and the expense of of living in, in LA would have would have got me eventually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's gotten worse too. Yeah. You know, another. What part of town do you live in? 
Uh, Valley Village. I'm in the in the valley, uh, oh, cool. San Fernando Valley. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's I I think about that, but you know, my wife's kind of dug in here a little bit, and mm-hmm. and. And I feel like I'm dug in too now. You know, I've got right. my, my little scene, all these the musicians, younger, older, different genres. You know, it, it, I'm 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 super grateful for where where this has come to. You know. Yeah. Um. Right. And but now I don't know where it's going to go. <laughs> right. I was about to I was about to segue and like what's yeah. what's it going to be now? <laughs> it's going to survive. You know, I don't know if any of the gigs will be there. Right. You know? So up until up until three weeks or a month ago, you you had you know you had weekly stuff, you had recording stuff, you're you're doing some yeah. touring, some weddings, some baked potato stuff, some some exactly. whatever. Exactly. Um, so what now? <laughs> I mean, yeah, what, have been, what have you been yeah. doing with your time for the last three weeks, and and how are you thinking about uh, you know trying to piece together some kind of living over the next yeah. few months? It's scary because the particular kind of musician that I am, it's really scary because I don't have a home studio. I, I, I had that for a minute with a partner uh, and we dissolved it because, you know, go figure what was happening in those three years is I was always getting called to play at studios, never, <laughs> never to right. provide my own tracks. You know, as soon as I got, you know, geared up, I didn't need the gear. <laughs> so, right. And, you know, we went. We tried to produce a couple of artists and, and, you know, it was a little bit of money, but a ton of time. And cause we were yep. perfectionists with it. So it's, I said, you know what, there's, I, I can't do this because I have to put the same effort in doing this that I put into learning how to play the drums. And there's just not enough hours in the day, Yeah, you know, so I, I'd rather just play the drums. So I gave that up and, uh, now it's, it would be a good time to have that right. know, because it seems right. like that's what people are doing. Uh, I'm just teaching online a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. a couple students a week. Hopefully that'll get better, you know. And you kind of had that going before, right? Yeah, but mostly not online. Right. There was, okay. There was a few. I had, a, you know, a few uh, drummers who would uh, Skype me from, you know, around the world uh, to take a lesson here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was mostly mostly students coming in, you know, and there right. was I, I have a couple of regular students. um literally two but uh the other ones are all guys that come in to work on something that they've seen me do and, uh, and most of them are professionals you know mm-hmm. right and they, they want to you know like i want to get my brush thing together i want to know what you did here on this gig and what you were thinking you know or yeah uh, st- stuff like that you know how, how what how do you get that sound underneath the uh the jazz ride you know yeah um, so things like that, they'll come in for one lesson and, you know, that, that kind of, you know, builds up to an okay supplemental income. It's cool. And it's a lot of fun for me, you know, because yeah. especially when, when you get uh, professional drummers in who are, are focused and they come in with a sheet of paper knowing exactly what they want out of you, it's great, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because I don't really have a teaching method. You know, I, I, I listen to someone play and then try to teach them from there and instead of just fitting them into my box, you know, totally. And I, I feel the same way. I, I have a lot of, I mean, the, the same holds true for kids students, um, who are, who are, you know, just starting out. Like I, um, you know, I, I never had the, the discipline or the organization to really like put together a curriculum that I could put a bunch of students through. Um, right. But but even if I did, I think it would have crumbled after about four students because, yeah. <laughs> you know, what yeah. works for one kid just does not translate at all for another one. And, you know, the same is true for 
professionals. You just got to meet people where they are and, and try to, um, try to bend your teaching or, or what you put forward to how you know they're going to receive it well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there is something to be said for that, though. There's plenty of great legendary drummers that are teachers that became teachers that have their thing. And when you go to them, that's what you're going to get no matter what. Right. You know, it's like you have to play this before you play that. You have to go through this book. And, you know, I, I can dig that, but it, it, that's not so much for me. Yeah. As a student, it worked a little bit. You know, I, I got a couple things out of it, a couple mm -hmm. of great books and approaches, but mostly not. You know, right. <laughs> I, right. I ended up just doing my own thing anyway. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah. Yeah. So the so, teaching is helping and I'm, I'm doing these, these trying to post on social media more than ever before, you know, just yeah, to remind people that I'm still around and, you know, for when things get back to normal, if they ever do, Yeah. you know, and, and until then, I mean, it's just a question mark. I, I have no clue. Right. <laughs> right. Did you, did you start, uh, like sort of a, an online drum school of sorts through Patreon? <clears throat> yeah, I have a Patreon where, um, where I started a couple of concepts that, that didn't work too well. And then I spoke to some friends of mine who did well on Patreon with bands and whatnot. And I realized, uh, I have to offer, um, uh, a, a lot of content for the least amount of money. <laughs> and that's right. how you get a lot of Patreons in there. So I came up with a little plan and now it's okay. You know, uh, hopefully it'll build. It, right. has, it has to build uh, for me to keep it going, but I'm giving it two years to get to a certain point. And then if it does that, then I'll just keep it going, you know? And, and again, it's supplemental income and and it's fun for me because I get to break down some of the things that I play, which I've never really thought of before, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, uh, I have to try to articulate these things, which is another huge challenge for me, which is why I, I don't really do clinics or drum shows because, I have a hard time verbalizing what it is that I do. Right. You know? um, so it's helping me in, in that respect too. Uh, you know, I have to do 15 takes to get five minutes of talking. In, but <laughs> yeah. You know, I, totally. and I, and I, do I can't have a script because then I'm sitting there looking at paper and you can see that. And it's like, it's, there's an art form. I have tons of respect for guys that can just teach or, or speak in front of large audiences about drumming. Right. You know? I, I have no idea how they do it. That's a gift. It's definitely a gift. Which yeah, I'm I'm have. learning. Like uh, before, you know, before all the shit went down, uh, my co-host Matt and I were developing um, like a master class um, based uh -huh. on you know all these interviews we've done and and some uh, recurring themes that just keep coming up in right. interview after interview. Um, and we had to practice. Like you yeah. know, we had we had an outline of all the content we wanted to cover, um, but when it comes to like you know, actually choosing words to put all this into. Um, yeah, we, I mean, it took some, it took some time. And even during, like we, we had kind of a dry run of the masterclass in Nashville and it went great, but we both had notes and it was yeah. like, we, you know, before the thing we had to practice, like looking at the notes, but then re-engaging with the audience. Cause otherwise you're just like head down right. reading. And it's good um, to know. That's good for me to hear that people have to do that because you, you see guys like, like, Rich Redman or, or Benny Greb or guys who will right. get up in front of an audience and it's like you're one-on-one -on -one in their living room and it's like, man, how do, how do you uh, reach that level of comfort or is it just something that, you know, they're born with? Right. Uh, it actually reminded me of like reading a big band chart um, because yeah. – 
like, you know, uh, uh, a college professor like busted me about just having my head buried in the chart. And that's when I started yeah. getting in the habit of like stealing glances at the chart and just like having your head up, looking around, just being aware of the whole band at all times. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you just kind of have these dual, um, uh, awarenesses yeah, <laughs> going yeah. at all no, times. No, absolutely. I know that that's, that's tough. But so yeah, what was your plan? Like you, yep. you said, you kind of made a plan for for your Patreon thing. What what did oh, it entail? It was just providing them with with. Um, well, I I wanted to do something different than what I saw is already out there, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> I haven't I didn't check everything out. So someone may be doing what I'm doing. I'm not sure, but I basically uh, I'm using my my phone to record uh, behind the scenes on on gigs and sessions and things that I think are, would have been of value to me when I was coming up in my, in my late teens and twenties, mm-hmm. you know, things that I wanted to know about that I could, couldn't find out about, you know, like what was it like on a TV session? What was it like on a movie session? Yeah. You know, what, what kind of charts am, am, am I in store for, uh, in the real world, you know, do, you know, so I'm, I'm giving them a, a, a taste of everything. You know, I, I bring, um, the phone with me and make sure I record, uh, if, if it's okay with the people I'm working for and nine times out of 10, it's fine. Right. You know, um, video game session, uh, a movie session. Like I did that, um, uh, recently, uh, between two ferns, I played on that movie soundtrack for Netflix. So I, oh, cool. I, I did, um, a behind the scenes, you know, for my Patreon on that, you know? And yeah. so I provide that kind of stuff along with, uh, a, a monthly lesson of a few topics you know like a 20 to 30 minute video that i also just record with my iphone lo-fi nothing Mm -hmm. fancy Mm -hmm. but the content is there you know and and just give them my take on on things and why i think i'm working you know yeah yeah and and they they seem to appreciate it you know it's definitely a particular student though it's not it's not the same guys that'll go on thomas lang's you know thing right you know so it, it's um, it's definitely a lot less students I feel are, are interested in that sort of thing. But the ones that are serious and want to play, you know, they they, they uh, are interested in that type of information, like I was. But see, I couldn't get it, you know. Right, right. Well, I mean, it's a great it's a great idea because you know half of half of what you need to survive uh, has nothing to do with your hands or feet. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know. Uh, it's just that behind the scenes stuff, like, you know, when you mentioned, like, uh, you said, like, what kind of charts are going to be thrown at me? Um, I immediately flashed to like all the charts that I read in college big band and how they bear no resemblance whatsoever to the charts that get thrown at me at my church gig (laughs) or something, you know, like if you get too entrenched in just expecting certain things, from a chart, um, it's, yeah. it's going to be a rude awakening, uh, you know, and then there's, there's, um, gigs that you don't get charts at all. And there's just a completely different language. People are just used to sort of telling you what they need and they won't even put it in, you know, one and two and terms. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man. I have a great, a great experience with that. Um, I was, uh, I got called to play uh, with Richard Bona and his band and, um, they sent me a, a recording of the of one of the records and Vinny was on it. It sounded incredible. So you know, I I learned some of it, but I thought you know for sure 
these guys, he's got to have charts, he's got to have something, you know, we're doing a <laughs> rehearsal. He didn't actually tell me to learn the music. He just said, here, you know, check this out. And I get there and, and you know, his songs are, are a, lot, it's a lot of odd meter African kind of stuff with with backbeat grooves and changing sections. And I get there and there's there's nothing. There's no charts. I find <laughs> out that that Richard himself can't read a note of music. Wow. You know, so the entire rehearsal, he's you know, I, I, I luckily I brought a device to, to record it. He's just singing things to me and you know, yeah. just repeating sections that I'm. I would have to play that that section and then we'd move on to the next tune and then we'd revisit it and then I'd have to remember it, you know, so it was it was was a good exercise and a a good learning experience on 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 that end, you know, and also, you know, I I had been booked on a session with, with Richard a week later. And and the artist didn't know that Richard couldn't um, couldn't read, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, so I show up to the session and it's Will Lee. You know, so that's a whole. So that's another. That's another learning experience, right there. It's like you know, it, you, you can only do so many things if you can't show up and read something down. You know, right, right. And, and you don't have to be. You don't have to be Marvin Smitty Smith or Vinnie Caliuta on the on reading level to to be a decent reader and to get gigs where reading is required. You know, right. And speaking of which, I mean, I I was thinking of two things as you were kind of telling that story, like. Yeah. Um, for, first of all, another uh, another one of the big gigs you've done, or two of the big gigs, are with Manhattan Transfer and New York Voices, yeah. Yeah. which are which are these uh, you know uh, vocal jazz quartets, and those arrangements are like tight. I mean, you have to you know as opposed yeah. to reading no notes with Richard Bona, you have to read all the notes with yeah. something like Manhattan Transfer. And then uh, the other thing I was thinking about was. You know, you you not only have to be in in a situation with like you were talking about with Richard Bona when you're being sort of thrown at this with no chart or whatever, yeah. you have to be you have to be musically capable of doing that. But you also have to be this was a thing I learned about myself, like you have to be personally agreeable <laughs> to yeah. that kind of thing. And my poker face is for shit. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, I realized over time that that I I had been in situations like that where you know, I got through it. I did the gig, but in the moment, I, you know, I, I made it clear that I was like not impressed or not happy about the fact that I wasn't being given charts. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that that did me no favors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's another thing as a side man. That's something you have to learn. You know, is you, you have to put those things aside. And and I, I've been there too. And I've I've been you know maybe I've even been an asshole on a gig in my twenties or early thirties. No, you know, I don't but, believe that about but you I've, for a minute, Steve. Maybe, <laughs> you know, but, but I got, but I, you have to get over it, especially when you get older and you realize at the end of the day, it's, it doesn't even matter. You know, you just try to do the best job you can do for them and, and get your ego out of it. You know, right, right. Um, I've been in situations with, with musicians we know, you know, where I, they, they would leave because they didn't have a chance. Like they would leave, like there was a situation with, with a, with a pretty well-known bass player who, and he left the gig because um, he didn't have enough time to get a certain thing together. And the, the artist brought it sound check and he didn't want to sound bad on it, mm-hmm. you know? So he was either going to leave the gig or we weren't going to play that tune. And he got into it with the artist and, and, and I learned from that, you know, that, I mean, it just made the whole gig uncomfortable. Right. You know, because his 
Gogut. And the way and the reality is he was a great enough musician to do a good job. He just wouldn't have been, you know, as as good as he normally is, maybe in his right. own mind. You right. know what I'm saying? So it's I, I've just learned to let that stuff go. It's just it, it causes unnecessary negativity. You know, it's just do do the best job you can. And the reality is all, all your fans and the audience, they're not going to know, you know, as long yeah. as you're still playing like you play. You know, if you mess it up a little bit, most people aren't going to know. Right. You know? But when you're younger, it's like, uh, I don't know, I was uptight about that. You know, I always wanted to sound a certain way and 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 I had to be happy with myself first, you know. And then I right. realized that I don't always have to be happy with myself uh, you know, as long as I do the job and, and the, the person that hired me is happy. Right, you know? right. And yeah. not every band leader is as concerned with setting you up to succeed. Exactly. You know, exactly. it's not it's not malicious at their it's not it's not malicious on their part. I mean, sometimes it is. Sometimes they don't give a shit and they're just like whatever. Um, but most of the time, it's either because they just speak a different language or because they don't have fucking time to worry about you. <laughs> um, so if you're not being set up in the way that uh, you're used to being set up, you know that was that was a lesson for me. It's like okay, I have to flex a different muscle. I have to rely on a different instinct here. Um, right. But I can still do a good job and have fun and, you know, get another call. Exactly. And and you, you know, you leave that gig with that artist praising you instead of saying, wow, that guy was such a pain in the ass, you know, totally. so maintenance. He didn't want to play this. He didn't want, you know, it's like, you know, you don't want to just care only about yourself. Right. <laughs> right. Things. It is. Yeah. And one of the overarching themes in that, that masterclass we were talking about is that, you know, people, people don't remember how you play. They remember how you make them feel. And, yeah, you good. know, if, if you're in the process of like, you know, rehearsal or sound check or whatever, and it's a shit show and you don't feel comfortable, but you're agreeable and trying your ass off and like positive. And then, yeah. the, the, you know, even if the performance isn't great by objective standards, they're going to feel so much better about you yeah. than if you're dark and <laughs> and negative and argumentative and then right. you go kill the gig yeah, right? like yeah you could just burn it to the ground but if you were right. a dick in the process um, yeah that's don't true remember that yeah absolutely especially if you're uh you know somewhat new on the gig or you're subbing or it, right. it's better to just be cool you know uh, i've i've gone off a few times in situations where i've been playing with people for for 10 years or, or more you know where you feel comfortable doing that you know and you, you know they're not gonna you know it's more like a family kind of vibe you know right right where you have an argument with someone or or whatever but you know if, if you're trying to be a successful freelancer you want to bounce around you got to be cool you yeah. know even yep. if the situation's not cool. <laughs> and it, yeah. it almost never is 100% cool. <laughs> That's right. on your um I don't I don't know if it was your bio or, or what but about um the the things that you like to cover in teaching um and one of the things you mentioned was uh just kind of the the physicality of drumming and the ergonomics of drumming yeah uh, and this is something that I'm just more and more conscious of as as I get older um 
and uh you know i I have my issues different issues have cropped up for no apparent reason over the years it's like you know it's like a golfer getting a shank in his swing or something exactly Um, but what are what are some of the issues that that you've had to address in in your own playing and and are there any um issues that you see a lot are there any common issues that a lot of drummers deal with um and and what are the solutions to those Okay. Uh, well, in, in my own playing, um, I noticed, uh, how old was I? I was about maybe in my late twenties, early thirties, um, that I, I started getting numb, you know, like, like, yeah, uh, in certain areas, not completely numb, just, I would feel a little tingling. Uh, it, it started, um, with my legs a little bit, I was sitting too high. I was cutting off circulation. I, I didn't realize, you know, I, I, I wanted to, to have a certain, uh, appearance behind the drums that I was used to seeing that from, you know, other people, my, 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 uh, my idols, you know? Right. Um, and, and so I, I tried to, to make the, my drums visually the way I, I envision drums and, and that's not ex- exactly what works for your body, you know? So, yeah. After after having a little bit of that issue and and um, some lower back stiffness and then um, my thumb and my right hand was going numb after playing uh, you know a high up tempo sixteenth notes on the hi hat you know wow. for long periods of time I felt that that little bit of tingling and I'm looking at my hand I'm not squeezing too hard what am I doing wrong you know so I tried to to really analyze all that at one point and um, I just sat on my throne I lowered my seat height, um, to the recommended, uh, you know, parallel to the ground or legs parallel to the ground. Right. And then I, I sat down and, and then I placed my, my pedals wherever I naturally put my feet, which was just directly in front of me as if I was sitting at the dinner table, you know? Right. Right. Um, and then I started setting my drums up around that, like my, my movements, my, my natural hand movements, um, and I lowered my hi-hat so, it, so my right hand could be um, lower than my heart. Because they, they say if it's higher, then that's, that's when you have a blood flow problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. And, you know, it was a little uncomfortable at first, but then I realized, wow, my, my hi-hat's up super forward because of my foot, you know, because that's mm-hmm. how my foot feels most comfortable. That's symmetrical. Both feet are, like, just in front of you. Um, but then I realized I had a much greater range of motion in my left hand because of that. Yeah. It's only reaching out a little bit farther and, you know, with my right hand. And it seemed to make sense with the way I, I used the molar technique. It was actually easier to have the hi-hat forward and more forward and lower, you know, and then I just angled my, my toms, um, like that, the Freddie Gruber style where they, they start in one point and you go down. Yeah. Um, and then. From from there on, I, I had no issues, you know. Huh. So, and I, I I hated the way my kit looked. It looked like some crazy <laughs> fusion fusion players drum kit, you know. And that's not what I was doing a lot of times, you know. Right, and and right. it's crazy how certain artists will look at your drum kit and just assume you play a certain way because of the way you have things set up, you know. Um, yeah. But I I got over that because I I felt so comfortable. And and the other benefit to it was I never felt strange behind my drums again I, I don't know if you experienced this but a, a lot of my students have when they come in and talk about ergonomics they're like you know i i have the memory locks in but you know when i move my drums from this place to that stage it feels like a different person's drum kit <laughs> you know 
And I, and I had experienced that, you know, where I, I was setting up everything, but I thought I was getting it exactly the same, but yet I would still go for a backbeat and hit the rim, you know, right, or right. something. Uh, but ever since I, I started setting up around my body as yeah. opposed to just putting the bass drum down first, you know, ever since I, I started doing it that way, um, I, I feel totally comfortable behind my drums on every gig. It's as if they're in my studio, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So what and I, I do think part of that, yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but I think no, part yeah. of that is like every, every time you set up your drums, you know, you're like, your body doesn't work exactly the same every day. Right. Um, and you know, if, if one day you're sitting up a little bit straighter than the last day, you know, maybe the next day you're just kind of slouching a little bit or you're not yeah. stretched out or like, then you're hitting that snare rim and, and it's like, well, shit, I'll just lower the snare a little bit today. That's where it feels comfortable today. Right. Uh, maybe this floor has a little more give or something, <laughs> you know, yeah, it could be that. Yeah. And we're talking about fractions of an inch with all this stuff. Yeah. Um, but anyway, continue. Yeah. But as, as far as students go, though, I, I've actually haven't experienced students that have the same issues. Everyone's got something else going on. Right. But I always recommend uh, what I just explained to you to them. I'm just like, sit down, you know, start with your pedals. You know, what I do first now is I, I set up my kick drum pedal and my hi-hat stand. And if it's, you know, double pedal, then I do it that way, you know, and, and I, I set up according to my body, you know. And mm -hmm. I know I know exactly where I want the snare drum. I, I it's like basically um, the same height as my navel. So it's, I just put you know use a drumstick as a measuring device. You know, and yeah. just if the rim is is that height, you know, then I, it's like perfect every time. You know, I set up the toms uh, around in that same fashion. You know, just to make sure I can reach everything and everything makes sense. You know, right. and and. Uh, I just have them do that and it's worked for everyone. You know, they, they call me and they're like, man, this is great. You know? <laughs> so what, you yeah. know, whether it's a four piece kit or they're playing two up, two down, you know, whatever it is, you know? Yep. Yep. It's amazing how many physical issues are caused. And as I'm thinking ab about it, like most of the physical issues I've gone through have been caused by exactly that. Like trying to wrap your body around the kit instead of the other way around. Right. Um, because, and it, you know, it's amazing how, how much pride gets in the way of that, because like you said, you know, your, your idols, your heroes kind of had a certain look to their drum set, or you, you know, you want your, uh, drum set to, to strike a certain, uh, silhouette or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and yeah, I think, you know, some people are more susceptible to that than others, but I'm definitely susceptible to that. Like I yeah. want my set to look a certain way. And, and if a Tom or a symbol starts looking too goofy or too out of place, I'm right. like, yeah, I'm gonna, exactly, <laughs> you know, even yeah. if it's the right place for it to be. And we're kind of um, conditioned, you know, just for being products of the eighties. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm a product of the nineties. I'm, I'm yeah, you're a little 90s. bit older than me, but um, yeah. But same thing. So, Modern Drummer Magazine, you know, was all yeah. about you know, gawking at those those rigs in the drum ads, you know. Totally. And, and watching your, your your favorite drummers in these photos, you know, and how cool their rigs looked. And, and if your rig didn't look like that, I mean, I wasn't happy, you know. But right. I, I soon changed. Um, age will do that to you because you realize, man, I can't I can't play what I want to play anymore. <laughs> you yeah. know, how how was I doing this wrong all these years and still executing it? But at, at some point it just, you know, your body will give up on you and say, Hey man, you know, get it right, together. Right. 
and and now I'm glad I found that, you know, because it's, it really helped me. Yeah. Uh, Another funny thing about the, the modern drummer influence is, um, about, about like promo shots. Um, because, you know, when you put your website together or whatever, like, I think, you know, drummers have a certain idea about what drummers photography should look like. And my, like my wife, when we first got together, um, she pointed out to me that like all of your ideas, everything you want to do is from a modern drummer ad. It's from some (laughs) ad selling cymbals or selling drums or whatever. And it's like, you know, you remember like Dave Weckl, like with his foot on the bass drum or something. And my wife was like, this is just, this is bad. This is douchey. (laughs) This is bad photography. This says nothing about you as a player. This is designed to sell gear. Right. And I know. That's true. Uh, and it's that, it's that conditioning though, you know? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's what was hip at the time. Right. Cause, so. cause when you were 12, you were like, I'm going to take a picture like that someday. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I still, I look at, uh, you know, Neil Peart who recently passed away. That was shocking. Yeah. I look yeah. at his rig and, and I remember, you know, I remember eighth grade and being just obsessed with that, the way that rig looked, you yeah. know, I didn't even understand you know the the musical concept behind it i mean he used every piece of it in that music right you know being the perfect drummer for that particular group you know but i i just i i see these photos from back then and i'm like wow no it's like a cockpit you know it's a spaceship man like, yeah <laughs> so for for a, a a young boy to you know be into that i think that's pretty normal yeah <laughs> totally know? totally it's it's something that we all have to overcome at, at some point yeah yeah um, yeah, but that's the whole ergonomic thing is I just set up for, for, for your body type, you know, right. we're, we're all different, you know, mm-hmm. some people have shorter arms, you know, they can't reach things as much. I mean, that's kind of my problem. You know, that's why I tend to slouch sometimes, you know, right. I see, I'm, I'm the opposite. I'm the yeah. opposite. I'm, I'm six foot five. I have long arms and yeah. Uh, yeah. Anytime I'm on someone else's kit, I'm usually moving things like further away from me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and you know, you, 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 see a drummer like Vinny, who's a, a taller guy and, and, and it's like, wow, he reaches these things so easily. Yeah. Because he's, he's different, you know? And then someone right. like Dave Elich, who's got total command of the instrument is a smaller guy and, and, and still manages to, to set his stuff up in a way where his posture remains great. And, you know, he's got his concepts, which, which are, are good too. I've learned a lot from, from watching him and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of sticking your chest out and standing up straight. I mean, sitting up straight you know yeah but there, you know there's and then there's the guys that lean to the left because they play traditional grip and then you know it's yeah it's got their own thing and you well know, it's like it's like finding your sound like you you have yeah. to find your way of playing but you also have to find your way of moving and and right. if if your set isn't conducive to the way you move like you might not even be aware of it i wasn't for many years and it sounds yeah. like you, you weren't either no. but once once you become aware of like how your body actually moves um you can you can really uh adjust your your set accordingly and it'll yeah. you know it'll make you it'll put you in a certain frame of mind i think i remembered um you know the bassist Tim Lafave? Yeah. He talked about how uh, somebody asked him how, like, why why don't you have your bass higher? Like, why do you wear your bass low like you're in Nirvana or something? Right. 
And his, his answer was like, if, if, if the base gets too high on my body, I just start, my brain goes into like, you know, noty fusion, John Patitucci world. Right. And, and that's not who I am. <laughs> right. Uh, and I don't think he referenced John Patitucci specifically, but no, I know what you he, mean though. Yeah. He, it just puts him in that frame of mind. That's like, he can play up there, but that's, that's not what he naturally wants to do. Right. Um, so right. I, th there's definitely a, an equivalent for us. Like if you can lean into your physicality, lean into your motion, um, the, uh, you know, the, the playing will improve and the absolutely. feeling will improve. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, pa parallel to that, uh, which is less about physicality. It's it, uh, speaking of like just bringing different drums to sessions, you know, mm -hmm. like if you're on a rock session and you decide to bring your 24 inch kick or your 26 inch kick with a, with a 14 inch rack and a, and a 18 inch floor Tom, what comes out right away, you know, is, is your bottom is going to come right. out <laughs> no oh, matter yeah. what. It's like, you just, I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't help myself. That's what yeah. comes out, you know? And there's a saxophonist, um, here in LA that called me to, to play a couple of tracks on his record and, uh, Catisse Buckingham. Yeah, I know Catisse. Yeah. And so one, one of the tracks he described, he's like, man, this is Questlove meets Bonham. So I, I brought um, this piccolo snare, this total like Steve Jordan-ish sounding snare that I had. And I brought a 20-inch, a 28-inch uh, concert bass drum, Yamaha bass drum with no legs or anything. I just had it on a towel and I used oh, that wow. for, the, for the session. You know, uh, I'm bringing this up because there, there are drummers out there session guys like Steve Gadd, for example, who always plays the same rig right. and always sounds like Steve Gadd. And then there's like, in my mind for myself, I feel like I have to always, I feel like a, a, a guitarist or someone who has to bring all these different sounding things to a session because you, I want to get the right sound for the track. Right. You know, and when you were talking about Tim, that reminded me of that. It's like a, something as simple as putting the bass up higher will, will make them, play in a different style yeah. that's not so much him but I, I feel like when when i switch the vibe up that I, I still i still feel like me because that's such a big part of my history you know whoever i'm channeling sort of and and whoever you're channeling it's not like you're gonna sound exactly like them anyway that's not really possible you're right. still you you know what i mean at the end of the day so I like bringing all these different things to ses sessions. You know, if one track needs a big bass drum sound, it, it's not going to sound like the track I played on before, you know, right. whereas right. there's other cats where it's like, it's the same sound on every tune, you know, it's them right away. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know what your, your thoughts are on that whole thing. If, well, if you like totally changing it up or if, if you're like, this is what I do, you know? Yeah. I, I don't think, um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not super prone to wanting to change it up all the time. And I, I really related to what Tim said about, yeah. you know, putting yourself in a headspace that isn't you. I think if I get, if I get too many toms or too many symbols going, um, <laughs> then I yeah. just want to hit them all at the same time. Yeah. I, I end up doing like a really terrible Vinny impression. Um, <laughs> you know, and so the, the, like the, the, the drummers that I love, um, like, Gad and and Peter Erskine and Bill Stewart um yeah and uh you know Bernard Purdy and like they their setups changed a, a little bit but not too much you know yeah. so I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to kind of get the best of both worlds like 
you know, bring in other sounds, bring in other drums, maybe like take take away some or add some here and there, but right. really like try and stay in touch with the nucleus of it and and not stray too far from the headspace that I know I sound good in, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Absolutely. I bet it, it in it to to answer it more directly, I think I would I would hew more towards the just keep it the same. Yeah. <laughs> you know, switch out the snare drum, switch out a cymbal or two, but um yeah, when I when I start drastically altering the the setup in terms of just the size of it, um, I've I've found that it it gets me into trouble in, yeah. in ways ways that I'm not good enough to get myself out of. <laughs> it doesn't feel good, you know. That's, that's funny. Um, I, I I ran into issues in the beginning with with kick drums, you know, especially playing with those vocal bands that you mentioned because they they go from Charlie Parker to like you know Earth Wind and Fire, you know, right. so. We, we would be playing, I remember doing my first few gigs with the transfer and, and having just these standard 22-inch, you know, uh, kick drum and 10, 12, 14, 16. And when it came time to do the, the first half of their set was always like jazz, bebop, swing kind of, because they wanted to flex that muscle, how, you know, hey, we took this Charlie Parker solo, we put lyrics to it, you know, or right. whatever it is. And it always felt bizarre to me coming from the New York jazz scene and going right into playing jazz on a 22-inch kick, feathering, you know, and then dropping bombs that just sounded like, you know, your, your cardboard, right. <laughs> you know, instead of like that nice resonant sound. Yeah. Now, that was a challenge uh, to make happen. I, f I felt like I got to a point where I f felt comfortable, but then um, I decided just to add a, an 18-inch kick drum with a slave pedal you know yeah and that changed my that changed my life you know and that and that's actually something that i saw weckle do it although he didn't he didn't use the same tuning he, he his were both tuned low but i saw him do that and i was like man that's i, I didn't think of that you know yeah. so i put that in the rig and then i used that rig again with with schofield because on 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 those uh, those two years, the the music we played we, ran the gamut as well. It was R and B, it was straight ahead, you know, it was some Latin, right? You know, so you, things get things get interesting with with drum choices and and cymbal choices too. When when you have to cover a lot of ground and you're and you're used to having some sense of like authenticity in your playing when you right. You, where you know it's like I can't I can't really swing on an on a on a dry you know some cut some kind of dry pingy ride you know it right. doesn't feel right to me <laughs> yeah know? yeah and then you you can't rock on the jazz ride <laughs> no, no you see because it gets too washy and again you, they lose it you know it's like there's no articulation yeah so it's yeah. <clears throat> that's one of the challenges you know I, I i find with with freelancing and playing a lot of different styles and and then getting a gig where it's like everything you do is on that gig you know right like all, the, all the different styles and you know yeah so I, you're, yeah. you're saying that like when, when everything you do is on that gig, you, you almost have no choice, but to kind of just add drums so yeah. that, so that when you're wearing one hat, you kind of, you, you feel native on, on that drum yeah. or that symbol. Yeah. And then you put on the other hat, you get to, you know, feel at home on the other one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think drummers, like, especially with, especially with snare drums, drummers are more and more likely to be hauling out like two and three snares on a gig. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, like I've, I've done that on a bunch of gigs and it's actually caused like more setup, like physicality sort of issues that I've had to address. Yeah. I actually started, um, 
like when I first started doing it, I put the second snare to the left of the hi hat. Um, yeah. But I I realized like it just felt completely disconnected. Like fills from the snare to the tom just didn't feel comfortable. Um, so I actually put I moved it to where like the first floor tom would be. Yeah. Um, and and started really shedding left hand lead on the hi hat so I could just play that snare with the right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you were saying, it's just you know one one gig or one set of songs can you know present all of these physical setup issues or, yeah. or un- unless you're Steve Gadd and you just play your fucking drum set that you've been playing for 40 years and, and you're done. And it works. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely envious of that, but I can't seem to pull it off. It doesn't sound right in my head when it's me doing it, you know, right. I, 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 on that same gig with, with John, uh, I also had, a, a had two, I had three snare drums the main snare drum, the uh, one to the left, like a popcorn to try to capture some of that, energy and then um a super fat seven and a half inch deep snare drum that i tuned way down yeah you know and and you know i i was a little insecure about having a rig that size with with an artist like that you know but um he actually complimented me on it he's like man you're really capturing the sound for each of these things you know that you know and then when we go to the, some straight ahead stuff and the, the kick drum was like Roy Haynes, you could tell that, that he dug that coming from the drums, you know? Right, right. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at drumsellers.com. People who listen to this podcast, I'm sure, are just fucking sick of me talking about John Schofield because I love him. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, great. So, yeah, I mean, what? Sweetheart. just describe the, the project that you played with him on. I, I basically um, auditioned for him not knowing what, what it was going to be like. Uh, you know, I just, yeah. I, I got a call saying, hey, from from John Benitez, who's my buddy in New York, he taught me a lot about Cuban music. Actually, uh, I played a lot with him. Uh, he said, "Come on down, you know, I'm playing with with Schofield, and, we're, and he, we, he's looking for drummers, and and we're doing it at Gary Gary Versace's house." Oh, cool! You know, right in Astoria. So I was like, "Cool, I could walk there." So I went <laughs> down, and and I uh, I put myself right into the headspace of like, you know what? At least you got to play with Schofield for 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I went down there and we, we went through a bunch of different grooves, um, a lot of boogaloo type stuff. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. this is interesting. You know, he actually played a couple of tracks from the, the record that we were support that we were supposed to support. You know, um, mm-hmm. it hadn't come out yet. It was Steve Jordan on drums. I immediately flipped. I was like, oh, this is killing. <laughs> I was complimenting him on the, how great it sounded and whatnot. And it was and, the music and, of Ray Charles, right? Yeah. That yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. So we played. But I didn't know that at the time. I, mean, I, I knew it was a Ray Charles tune, but I, you know, I had no clue. We played some of that. We played some jazz. We we jammed on some tunes, you know. Yeah. And uh, it, I ended up being there for like ninety minutes, and I split. And then I later found out when he called me for the gig that it was it was this Ray Charles project. But the live thing was a, a little jazzier, mm-hmm. you know. Like, would insert sections, swing sections into some of these songs, or we would do a couple of tunes from, you know, his quartet, you know, with Lovano and Stewart. And, and we would also, uh, do some stuff from Uber jam, you know, 
Hottentot was in the set list and a couple of other tunes oh, like that. Medeski Martin Wood thing and yeah. yeah, 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 that right. Sorry, that's Medeski Martin and Wood, but we did um, we did something from Uber Jam too. A couple of those type of tunes. I, I don't really so recall. You're, like you're you're in this gig and you're having to cop Steve Jordan, Bill Stewart, Adam Deitch, and Billy Martin. Yeah, that's what I mean. Was, uh, <laughs> but, but, the, but the thing with with Sco is that he never really, you know, he never said anything like that. He's not that kind of musician, you know. He would expect you to just be yourself, right. you know. But I felt I felt like these guys made such a statement. I, I need to capture some of that while while I'm me, you know. Sure, sure. Uh, didn't feel comfortable just coming in there and playing it like like I would play it from the get go, you know. So I, I did on some of those tunes. I actually learned parts and then changed them, you know. Right, and like you said, just your instrument choice. You know, like like you said earlier, no matter what instruments you choose, you're gonna sound like you or some yeah. version of you. Yeah. Um, and you're you know you're you're not the first person that said that uh, Sco is just really open to like how you want to play and what you want to bring. Right. Um, but the fact that you made like a couple of conscious decisions about, you know, those different snare sounds and, and like he, he noticed that and, you know, yeah. he, it wasn't that he wanted you to play exactly like Steve Jordan, but you just brought a little bit of that seasoning in there. Right. Yeah. Um, he definitely appreciated it. Yeah. Um, but there were, there were certain points where he, he wanted me to get, get rid of some of the, the studio drummer mentality, you know? Um, right. It's songs being exactly the same tempo every night. He said, don't mm-hmm. worry about that. A- after, you know, like the, the first month, he was like, it doesn't have to be exactly the same every <laughs> night. He's like, it doesn't have to stay put every night either. Yeah, he said, yeah. if you want to push it if you want to, you know. And and that's basically the only criticism or, or suggestion he made in, in two years. He never said anything else to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Except for thank you, super super gracious sweetheart of a guy and brilliant musician, you know. Yeah, and that's that's everything I've heard about him. He just he just seems like a very open, very grounded, um, very generous musician. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So so that was that was a trip. That was a huge learning experience. Just listening to him blow every night, you yeah. know, live. He would take so many choruses, and they would make so much sense, and they would build and. Yeah. You know, it's it's good you mentioned that because his playing is just like it's so it's so distinct it's so recognizable but there's almost no licks yeah that's that's right i mean i i heard a couple things that he liked to play sure (laughs) um but it's where he put them that made so much sense and and that really helped me as a soloist too you know it's like wow if i if i could just capture that storytelling in my drum solos you know i i wouldn't get so nervous about saying something all the time you just let it develop you know yeah and 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 i felt like i got there on his gig because he made me feel comfortable you know in the trading there were some great moments trading with him where things came out of me that I, I was like, wow, this is this is kind of cool. And it's because of him. You know? right, <laughs> you know? right. And and the rest of the guys, too. I mean, Gary was great. There's, it's just that was a fun gig because it crossed styles and everyone was was playing on a super high level, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Gary is a motherfucker, too, man. I love his playing. Yeah, all of John Benitez the first year, and then Ruben Rodriguez the second year. The second year we went out with Mavis Staples too, so right. that was that was nuts. 
<laughs> I mean, talk a le- learning experience. She was the 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 least. Uh, she was the lowest maintenance singer I've ever worked with. <laughs> well, yeah, that was another thing I wanted to ask you. Like with with drummers who have played with you know sort of iconic front people like that. I'm I'm always curious about you know what what um, what someone like that needs from a drummer and and how they express it. Uh, Mavis was it's super easy. Just as long as it felt good, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she didn't. She didn't even know what uh, what keys uh, her tunes were in. Sometimes, you know, like uh, Gary would say, "Is this key good?" And she's like, "Honey, I don't know. It ain't from my asshole." <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought that was, uh, you know, it's just so organic. I mean, she's just a natural, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and she would just start singing in the pocket and and her phrasing. And I mean, she didn't even have to be in tune, and it was incredible. But she yeah. was in tune, you know what I mean? But right. it was like that kind of just like a part of your being. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I like that you mentioned like her phrasing in her pocket because I think great, great singers don't get enough credit for having great time, and it's, oh, it's so important. It's something that drummers can learn from, like where great singers put time and how they interpret rhythm. Yeah, um, you know, just has I think has so much to teach us, and we've all played with you know our share of singers where that's not the case, shall right. we say. But, yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, the great ones, not even the famous ones. Like, I have friends in Atlanta like who are just ungodly singers with whose time is better than mine will ever be, you know? <laughs> I, know the, I know the type, for sure, yeah. 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 Crazy. And, and I don't, you know, in some cases, I don't know if they've worked on it or if it's just something that's just natural. I don't know, it's yeah. The way they, they feel things. You know, I know with 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 Patty Austin, who I worked with a bunch, yeah, she, she could tell the band where to put things just in the way she sings the melody. Yep. You know, and and you can tell, you know, you can tell when she's trying to nudge you, and you can tell when when she wants you to stay put, and she's playing around you or singing around you, you know, with right. her rhythm. And that to me is super impressive. But you know, she's she's uh, a, a session singer. Singer. you know she was that's her whole career was session singing in the beginning so she's super hip to all that kind of stuff you right. know right right or if you sing her if, if you feel her uh singing kind of in front you know consistently you know she wants you to just push it up a little bit you know yep things like that i, fi- I find very impressive or she could sit you could put it somewhere and she'll sit right back in it you know wherever you're you're putting it totally and um, it, sometimes they'll actually physically do that like singers yeah. singers body language is so informative if that's you're paying right. attention yeah yeah that's why you got to keep your eye on them yeah <laughs> head on a swivel baby <laughs> Yeah, but that that's definitely a thing, you know. It's that you know, I find that today uh, because everyone's playing with machines and they're they're making these videos that are a minute long. You know, you can't really get a sense of if they can actually play a good time or not. You know, right. because there's so much more involved with time. You know. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's the way it's the way you negotiate. You know, it's the, it's the way you move around, the way you make someone else sound good or feel comfortable. You know, it's it's not always about you know, keeping the BPM exact or, 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 uh, burying the click, you know, totally. And, and to kind of like come back around, I I'm, I'm hoping that one of the things that, that comes out of this period in history is that, um, you know, musicians and music fans, 
uh, kind of reconnect with the value of just being in a room together. Yeah. Um, because obviously, you know, technology allows us to do basically whatever the fuck we want now. Right. Um, <laughs> but, right. Um, there's just there's just no replacement for like making music in a room together, whether it's right. a live show or in the studio. Um, just like humans being around each other and and experiencing music together is uh, irreplaceable. And and yep. I hope I hope that um, you know a little more of a of a value is is placed on that when we're allowed to do it again. I hope so. You and me both, man. Yeah. It's, it's it's crazy because it's like now I, I when I teach about this sort of thing, I, I, I talk about how valuable of a skill it is. I mean, 20 years ago, it, it was just an unspoken thing. Everyone knew, you know, it's it's all playing music is all about the way you communicate. Mm-hmm. Even if you're playing the same thing every night, it's still it's, it's got that human element to it. And and now it's a lot of people just playing by themselves in a room with a camera, you know, and, a, yeah. and, and Pro Tools. And, and they don't have the skill. A lot of them haven't had the opportunity to develop the skill playing with humans all the time, you know. Yep. And the more yep. of them you play with, the more challenging it gets. You know, if you, if you have totally. an orchestra, it's a different vibe, you know. Yeah. You can't just sit there and play time like you're playing it perfectly in your basement. You know? Right. It's a living, breathing thing. And yeah. Uh, it uh <laughs> it'll it'll bite you <laughs> <laughs> it's true yeah yeah well, man. cool steve man this was this was great i'm glad we we finally got a chance to talk and and i'm i'm sorry we did not cross paths in person during my time in la but i, oh, I no hope worries. we can Me too. hope we can find a time to do that at some yeah, point yeah I, I appreciate being here and i and i hope i was able to articulate my thoughts you know yes absolutely <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. So, so it could help some people out, or you know, give them some insight on some yeah. things. You know, so. Real quick, if uh, if people want to check out your Patreon thing, uh, what what is that? Where can they get that? It's just uh, www.patreon.com/hasbeat. H-A-S-S-B-E-A-T. Cool. And and when, as soon as they land on that page, they'll see all the different options for for things. And, yeah, it's, it's it's pretty cool. You know, it's cool, a little dr- a little drum community. You know, and yeah. everyone seems to be uh, really keen on just learning over there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, nice, nice. It's been fun. Well, good luck, man. Thank uh, you, man. Likewise, same to you. It, and keep it going. Yeah, stay stay healthy and safe, and um, looking forward to this quarantine being over. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so we can all get back to work. Likewise, likewise. Yeah. In the, in the meantime, we'll we'll see you on the gram. Exactly. <laughs> thanks, brother. I cool. appreciate thanks it. Thanks a lot, Steve. Have a good one. Great dude, hell of a drummer, total pro. Thanks to Steve Haas for that talk. Hope you dug that. Check out his Patreon at Patreon.com/HaasBeat. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash working drummer. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and Instagram and at workingdrummer.net. We hope you're doing well or at least okay and finding ways to stay productive and creative during this time. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.